As we will begin, Lord willing, a new series this morning in the book of Jonah. Please turn to that very book, the book of Jonah, and we will read the whole first chapter, verses 1 through 17. But we will focus on the first 16 chapters because verse 17 is the connector between chapter 1 and chapter 2. So the book of Jonah and the first 17 verses, the whole first chapter, and this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found the ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the man rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the man feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, 
And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Congregation, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the book of Jonah does not give us any information concerning the precise time for Jonah's ministry, but we find such information in the 14th chapter of the second book of Kings, where we read this in verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. So we are in Israel under King Jeroboam II's kingship. And if we read on, we are told that Jeroboam did evil in the sight of the Lord. And we know that we are not dealing with a good king here. But nevertheless, surprisingly, it says in verse 25 of the 14th chapter of 2 Kings, he, Jeroboam that is, restored the border of Israel from Libo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah. And now listen to this. According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. Now, from this very interesting text, we learn two very interesting things. Things that are very important. First of all, that, jo that Jonah ministered about 800 years before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, during the reign of King Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom, of which Samaria was the capital. Secondly, we learn the content of Jonah's only prophecy to Israel that is recorded in Scripture. And that prophecy is a promise of blessing despite having an ungodly king, despite of being an utterly depraved and immoral nation. Israel, because of their depravity, was oppressed from all sides, and God still had compassion on them. And this compassion on the side of God was announced through the mouth of Jonah. Now, why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this to show you that Jonah, first of all, was a true prophet, and secondly, he was a faithful prophet. He, he was not some, some crook, as we might think, if we only read or only know the book of Jonah. Now, sadly, God's merciful blessing on wicked Israel did not result in Israel's lasting repentance because only one generation later, in the year 721 A.D., 
Samaria was overrun and destroyed by the Assyrians who became God's instrument for Israel's chastisement. Now, this, this Jonah to whom we were just introduced is one of the main protagonists in the Old Testament book that bears his name in our Bible. And yet you might be surprised to hear that he, Jonah, is not the main character in this book, but somebody else. As the supreme protagonist in this book is the sovereign God of heaven and earth. We must not miss this. And we will look at our text through the lens of the main characters in it. First of all, a sovereign God. Secondly, a running prophet. And thirdly, an unlikely congregation. A sovereign God, a running prophet, and an unlikely congregation. Let us begin with the main protagonist of the book of Jonah, the sovereign God. Verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The first thing that we must see here is that not Jonah, but God is the initiator of the events in the book of Jonah. You have to understand this, at this as this is what this whole book is all about, that God is the only sovereign over the whole of creation. That's the very core of this book. I tell you this right away. You have to interpret the book with this understanding. That when God speaks, all creation listens and obeys, no matter how strange or twisted some events may look from our viewpoint. That everything that happens in all of creation is not because God lets it happen, but because God rules every detail of creation. Again, no matter how strange, how hurtful, how dark, how twisted, how sad it might appear to us. Just like the Assyrians served God's purposes, in later conquering and destroying Israel, so do all things, all things do God's bidding. So God initiates the events in the book of Jonah, and in verse 1 we see how he does it. It says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now the book of Jonah is divided into two main sections, the first section being chapter 1 and 2, and the second chapter being, uh, the second section being chapter 3 and 4. And each one of these two sections begins with exactly the same words. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. 
God initiates the events by calling Jonah. Verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. Now this is remarkable. Arise and go. The grammatical construct here clearly expresses utmost urgency. This is not like whenever you're ready, uh, come and uh, drop over to Nineveh. Uh, Jonah is called to immediately drop everything and right now go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil had come before God. See, this is something that this world does not understand. This is something that the church sometimes does not understand. That it is so easy to sin from our viewpoint because it looks like we're doing it and nothing happens. I saw a, a, a film about people trying to get the uh, Queen's Guard in London to laugh or to make a move. And they will try to do everything just to get them to laugh. And at some, they get emboldened because they do not respond. They just stand there with their rifles. They do not move. But when you cross a certain point, they will out of the blue, out of nothing, suddenly, top of their lungs, yell at you, do not interfere with the Queen's Guard. And I saw people being scared almost to death, running away, screaming after the guards have done this. And as soon as they were done, they stand back in their original position. And this is what we do not understand in dealing with the living and true God. We try a little sin. We put our foot a little bit over the line. And we realize nothing happens. Nothing happens. Then we put the second foot over the line and still nothing happens. And we, in our minds, we make excuses why we are doing this, why we have to do this. And we sin a little more. And then we get used to the sin and nothing happens. Look, it cannot be all that bad. But, beloved, there comes a time when the sin of a nation, when the sin of a person comes before God, that doesn't mean that he doesn't know about it beforehand. He knows everything at all times. But there comes a time, even with the most patient, long-suffering God, when the measure is full. And then he will deal with you. And then it's chastisement or judgment time. And this is what he's saying here about Nineveh. For their evil has come before me. Now this uh, shows us two other remarkable things. First of all, it shows us that God rules all nations. That he is the sovereign over all things. That his sovereignty is international. Just like Abraham 1,200 years earlier called him the judge of all the earth. Secondly, it shows us that the whole world 
And every nation and every, everything and everyone in it is accountable to God and to His law. God is here proclaiming judgment over a pagan nation. And the Ninevites' evil was evil not according to some man-made standard or according to some ominous natural law that nobody really knows. But their wickedness, as all wickedness, is defined as such according to God's law standard. Which is the absolute standard there is. Even though Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, was a pagan city without knowledge of the living and true God, they were still fully accountable to him according to his law. They were a cruel and a much-hated enemy of Israel. And yet remarkably, and we must see this, God sends a prophet to proclaim his word to them, even if it is a word of judgment. You have to understand what's happening here. Here is a God sent, you can say in Old Testament terms, a Christian prophet who is sent to a pagan nation to proclaim the law of God. And here we clearly see once again that all the earth believer and unbeliever, are obliged to comply with the precepts of God. So God initiates a chain of events by calling Jonah to go and to cry out against the wickedness, the evil of Nineveh. Well, let us now look at the second protagonist in this drama, the prophet Jonah. We were already introduced to him as the son of Amittai, and so far he had been, or he was, a faithful prophet in Israel who had prophesied God's mercy on Israel under King Jeroboam II. And yet our first impression of Jonah in this book that bears his name is not a good one, as it says in verse 3, but Jonah... With these words alone, we know that this is not going to end well. It begins with the Lord doing something, with God giving a precept, and then comes the word, but Jonah. He rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found the ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. What horrible words. Away from the presence of the Lord. You see, we do not know exactly how to locate or where exactly to locate Tarshish, but we do know enough to say that it was in the opposite direction from where God had told Jonah to go. Jonah, of course, is foolish in several respects. First of all, when God gives an order, the only proper answer is, here I am, plus full and immediate compliance. 
That's the only proper answer to God's precepts. Here I am plus full and immediate compliance. Secondly, the second foolishness of Jonah, you can never, ever outrun God. Jonah probably chose Tarshish because through Isaiah, God says about the people there, they have not heard my fame or seen my glory. Smart fellow as he was, he thought, oh, they don't know a thing about God. I can go there and nobody will hold me accountable. You see, that's exactly the thing that happens when a child of God walks into sin. As they come more and more into sin, they will be more and more inclined to leave the fellowship of true believers in order not to be called out or even be reminded of their own sin. They seek to avoid and to flee the presence of the Lord. What a foolish notion. Because then there is Psalm 139. Where shall I go or where shall I flee from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. People of God escaping or running away from God is Utterly and absolutely impossible. Third foolishness of Jonah. He did not consider that if you try to outrun God, you are always asking for trouble, as we will soon see. Fourthly, at the end, God's sovereign will will be done. Always. Now, to be fair, Jonah didn't just run because he didn't feel like going to Nineveh. I have indicated before that the Ninevites were known to be exceedingly wicked and cruel. The prophet Nahum prophesied against Nineveh in the 7th century B.C. in Nahum chapter 3. And he says, Woe to the blood city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, a galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of splain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. That was Nineveh through the words of Nahum. So a mixture of terror and disgust over the Ninevites were the very likely reason for Jonah not wanting to go to Nineveh, but to flee the other way towards Tarshish. And yet there is no reason, of course, that would ever justify not complying with God's commands. And as we have already said, you cannot flee from God. You cannot outrun God. There will be consequences, as we also see in our text. 
as verse 3 began with the words, but Jonah, this was by far not the end of the story because verse 4 begins with the words, but the Lord. And those always remain the last words. But the Lord hurled the great wind upon the sea. So the sovereign God brings about a severe, never-seen-before kind of storm. And in this storm, we are introduced to a group called the mariners, whom we will also call an unlikely congregation. Those mariners were not a football team or any other sports team. They were sailors. These sailors or mariners worked on the ship, and they were like many in the world today who will only spend the thought on God in situations of extreme danger or angst. And such was surely the storm that they were in. It says, Every man cried out to their God, but to no avail. Then they throw cargo overboard as to lighten the ship's load, but also to no avail. They try everything they know of or can think of, but to no avail. And the captain searches for Jonah and find him, finds him in the inner part of the ship, and it says, fast asleep. And I hope you allow me to pause here for a few moments to take you on a little rabbit trail. There is the notion among many evangelicals that you can find out the will of God by having a certain kind of peace in your heart. The horrible sins I had to deal with as a pastor were often people who would say, but pastor, I have peace in my heart about it. And I want to say, who cares? But you can't be that rude. Peace has never been and will never be an indicator for God's truth, but only God's Word. So these people run around and will tell you all day long, well, I have peace leaving my wife or leaving my husband. I have peace fornicating. I have peace doing this. I have peace doing the other. And the answer must be who cares because peace is not the indicator of truth as we see for example in this text here Jonah is going exactly the opposite direction of God's will and he has peace because he's not only asleep he is fast asleep in the worst of storms in the memory of humankind in that day he has peace, so it must be right what he's doing, right? I had a friend uh, when I was back in Europe, and he would, uh, he would be a student, and he would take forever, smart fellow, but he would never go to exams. So he continuously would postpone exams. And I counseled him, and I said, look, here's what you do. You sign up for the next possible date for this big exam, and no matter how much you learn, or how ma no matter how much you think you know, or have learned, or how prepared you might think you are, you will go to that exam no matter what. And he was very excited. He said, yes, that's what we're going to do. The day of the exam, in the evening, he came to the apartment where I lived, 
And he rang at the door and I opened the door and there stands uh, smiling Michael. And first I thought, well, he has passed the exam. And he said, no, 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 I didn't go. I said, Michael, didn't we have an agreement that you would go to this exam? Yes, we did. But t- let me tell you, I know the moment I have told the university that I will not come to the exam, in other words, when I have canceled the exam, I suddenly felt peace. And I said, surely you felt peace because the pressure of the exam was off you, not because you did something that was right. This is how we continuously think or try to justify our own will over against God's will by having some ominous peace that the Word of God never speaks about. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ in the garden didn't have much peace, did he? Although he was in the center of God's will as he was every second, every moment of his life. And yet it says, I'm troubled, my soul is troubled even unto death. No peace. Peace is not a criteria for you to know whether God's will is being done in your life or not. But only compliance with the Word of God A seared conscience, one of the scariest things that the Bible ever talks about. A seared conscience is a conscience that will not react to the truth of God anymore. Which means you can sin as much as you want and you will have peace in your heart. Peace is not a criteria. You can have peace. It doesn't mean that that, uh, you cannot have peace if you're living according to the will of God in the long run. What I'm saying is it is not an epistemological measurement for truth, but only compliance with the written Word of God. So they wake up Jonah, and he was fast asleep, and they wake him up, and they tell him to call on his God. They, they try every God at this point. Is there any God that we haven't tried yet? And in their fear, they eventually resort to the pagan practice of casting the lot in order to find out on whose account this violent storm had befallen them. This is not the biblical way of casting the lot. This was the pagan practice of divination. And God once again shows us his limitless sovereignty as he steers the lot towards Jonah. And they implore him to tell them what was going on. It seems like these sailors or these mariners had a better understanding of God's doing than Jonah himself did, the prophet. And then Jonah finally comes somewhat clean as he identifies himself as an ethnic Hebrew who fears the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, the construct here puts the emphasis of this saying on God. God is the sovereign. God is the actor. Jonah knows this. That God is the sovereign over all things. Jonah is beginning to understand what he has done and what is happening to him and to the others. That they are experiencing the ramifications of his disobedience while the storm is getting worse and worse. And then comes verse 12. He says to them, Pick me up 
and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And then once again, the mariners show more moral integrity than Jonah, and although they're scared to death, they seek to avoid throwing him overboard. And it says, the man rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Again, these pagan mariners have more insight about the God of heaven and earth and about his omnipotence and power than the prophet of the Lord himself. O Lord, for you have done as it pleased you. They immediately understand who is in charge of heaven and earth, who is in charge over sea and dry land. You see, something must have happened to these sailors' hearts as their whole approach to their calamity changes completely. They do whatever they can to avoid throwing Jonah overboard, even risking their own lives. And now they hesitantly comply with the prophet's suggestion as they understand more and more that this prophet now is really speaking from the Lord, commanding them to hurl him into the sea. But they still call out to the Lord of heaven and earth in order not to offend him. Something has happened in the hearts of these men, and as far as we can tell, these pagans, these hardened pagans, came to fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, to use Jonah's words from verse 9. They had become a very unlikely congregation of God-fearers. And as they now understand what is going on around them, they become obedient to God's will, which he had spoken earlier through the mouth of the prophet. And it says, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased, or the sea immediately ceased from its raging. And then verse 16, then the man feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. What a stunning chain of events. Let us pause here and ask, how does all of this apply to us? We need application. It is not enough for us to hear a stunning event. We need to hear what does it mean for us here in the 21st century at Walker. And I want to focus on two major applications. The first one addressing the church of Jesus Christ as a body, and the second one addressing each one of you as individuals. The church as a body first. A little while ago, I think it was December 31st, I preached a sermon on what is commonly called the Great Commission where Jesus gives his church marching orders 
as he was ascending to take the throne over heaven and earth, as he is quoted in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When I preached on this text, I showed you that the 21st century church in the West is for the most part completely ignoring this commission. As we do not really believe that Christ has all authority on heaven and on earth. Yes, we will, we will proclaim it, we will profess it all day long, but we really do not believe it. We're also not making disciples of all nations. Good grief, we're having a hard time raising the funds for a native missionary to go back to Turkey. We are not teaching the nations. We are not teaching them all things that Christ teaches us in His Word, as we are basically excluding the whole of culture and dividing the world into two kingdoms or two realms. One being the church in which the Bible applies, and the other one being the worldly kingdom in which the Bible has absolutely no say. And no authority. And we feel actually quite pious about this. And we do not really believe that Jesus Christ is with us always. Otherwise, we would be much bolder, much more decisive in building the kingdom of Christ. So just like Jonah, the church in the West is going the other way of her commission. And just like Jonah, the church in the West will have to suffer for it. And then we are increasingly surprised, and this is for me, this is for me the most surprising thing of all. And then we, we fall into this victim mentality. And, and acting all surprised when things go downhill, and we say, of course, the world. It's not because of the world. It is judgment. It's not because of the world. The world has always been like it is. It is because of us. It is because of the church. Because we are lazy. Because we are cowards. Because we are not building the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's going downhill with this world. Because as the church, so goes the nation. Go figure And we quickly and increasingly alter our end times doctrine, our eschatology to pessimism, as to feel good about this inactivity, about this decline. And we scold everyone who dares to call us out on this disobedience and defeatism. Oh, you're a triumphalist. Leave us alone. Leave us alone. Let us sleep and slumber. You're just a triumphalist. So instead of repenting, instead of taking up the battle worldwide for the kingdom of Christ, we are constantly moving the goalposts eschatologically as to make our own decline God's revealed eschatological will and thereby we are adding and altering the word of God. 
But I have to tell you, and I tell you with God as my witness, not obeying God's commission has and will continue to have consequences. And we must not speak or even think revival unless we are willing to thoroughly repent of our own laziness, inactivity, and worldliness as the church of Jesus Christ. And don't tell me or ask me where is the love. I never want to hear that horrible phrase again. It takes far more love to tell you the hard truth than what you want to hear. Because the liars have the big churches. The liars have the consequences. Those who tell people what they want to hear have the famous names and the book and speaking contracts. When they were searching for Jonah, they found him fast asleep in the inner part of the ship, like the church in the West today, sound asleep, and even the world sees the storm. Even the world comes to the church and says, Church, church, what is going on? And we say, go away, go away, let us sleep. And we keep on sleeping and we keep on slumbering while the world goes to hell in a handbasket. But you see, obedience is not only required of the church. It's very easy to, to dive into the uh, aggregate of the church. I'm just one little part. What can I do? But this application is also for each individual of us. We read God's law every Sunday in this church. We preach His law and His gospel in every single sermon. So we are hearing God's revealed will all the time, and yet so often... We do not comply with God's precepts. So often we refuse to trust Him and willingly hold back areas of our lives from His rule. We are doing exactly what Jonah did. We know what to do. We know how to give ourselves to Christ, and yet we refuse. Because we are more interested in our kids' athletics and having a good name or having that cottage on the lake. I don't know of anyone who has that cottage, so don't think I mean you. I mean a mindset. Athletics is not a sin. A cottage is not a sin. But idolatry is a sin. And God in his mercy will bring about consequences for us to wean us off of this world, to wean us off of our idols, as he did with Jonah. And Romans 8.28 will still, still apply. That all things work together for good to those who love God. But sometimes this good, according to our own disobedience, will be utterly painful. But it will still be good. You see, dear brother, dear sister, once God has put his hand on you, there is no running. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Beloved, escaping from God is impossible. 
The only proper answer to God's commands is here I am, plus immediate full compliance. We know how this is for us, and we know how it can play out for us, but how it plays out for Jonah, we will look at, Lord willing, next week. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in repentance once again. We ask you, living God, as a substitute for the church in the West, we ask you for forgiveness for our own inactivity, for our cowardice, for our laziness, for our idolatry. Every single one of us is involved in it. And we ask you, living God, start, begin anew with us. Revive us, restore us, forgive us, and remake us. And may we henceforth live for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. May your name be exalted in Jesus' name.